two vastly different young men locked in a bond of friendship forged by the greatest of the martial arts, destined to forsake the comforts of ordinary human creatures for a dark destiny of danger. No fighting art is unknown to them. They have mastered karate, aikido, jujitsu, not as ends in themselves, but as steps on a path that can lead to greatness or sudden, horrible death. Coming of a dragon! Fifteen years ago in Kyoto, Japan, Richard Dragon sought to steal a 1,100-year-old Jade Buddha from a villa. The young, strawberry-blonde man was confronted by O Sensei, an older, bald Asian fellow who would have allowed the theft if the Buddha were his to give. Dragon attacked the Sensei, who somehow knew Richard's identity. O Sensei spouted fortune cookie wisdom while easily batting the youth about. Dragon pulled a knife, but was swiftly disarmed and tossed to the ground. A student approached the combatants, exclaiming, Ooh, you ain't much for soft landing, are you, friend? Benjamin was nothing but friendly. Offering Richard some fresh brewed tea, Dragon shifted from ages smack talking the sensei to outright racism at the colored pupil, calling him a refugee from a minstrel show. The bigoted, potentially murderous little jerk continued, I got pride and it won't allow me to accept anything from an ape. I'm gonna shower those pearly teeth all over the dirt. Benjamin chuckled. I do believe you are the excitable type. Then cooled the cat off by leveraging him into a fountain. Ready for that tea, Rich? Ben explained this was a school partner. The O-Sensei teaches us to become ourselves. Better than ourselves, matter of fact. O-Sensei since Dragon carried in himself a great burden of hate around a core of goodness that he wished to cultivate. With neither kin nor comrade, Richard Dragon accepted an invitation of education. After six years of transformative training and reading the wisdom of Eastern texts, Richard Dragon joined Benjamin in addressing a group of goons spying on the villa from a jeep nearby. The men were looking to test the mettle of the twin martial artists and were treated to a beating. A fourth man waited in the jeep, an older, corpulent, bald Asian in a brown suit and fedora. Puffing on his cigar, Barney Ling wasn't disappointed with O-Sensei's star pupils, and the instructor soon joined the conversation. Ling represented an international peacekeeping group named G-O-O-D. What the initials stand for is not important. Only the student's willingness to help the cause. Benjamin dismissed, Me? I don't care. I'm not interested in being an organization man. Ling mentioned modern-day slavery in the Sudan changed his tune. I have a photo of the kingpin, an Afghan who calls himself Aki, G-O-O-D, one of the crippled slave trade by bringing Aki in for questioning, and Benjamin thought maybe he could cripple Aki in the process. Please, we are never crude. We merely wish you to deliver him to us. Unharmed. Richard Dragon was unsure how to proceed, and asked O-Sensei's advice. When a worthy cause can speak to the superior man, he answers. Does this cause speak to you? Benjamin replied, Plenty. Okay, Mr. Ling, I don't care a whole lot for your style. You do a lot of smirking, but count me in. Dragon agreed. Early the following day, a private jet whisks Benjamin and Richard across the roof of the earth to Thais, the capital of Yemen. A Dao carried the pair to the Sudanese coast, where they easily located Aki's fortress and army of bodyguards. Richard had the idea of having Benjamin sell himself into slavery to access the fortress's interior, but Aki decided, The black one who brought him is valuable too. Seize them. Lock them in the pins. Tomorrow they will add to my wealth. The pair were taken to a dungeon hellhole filled with starving, diseased captives in cages. Rich, I feel like being sick. Dragon wouldn't allow himself that luxury, as he picked their lock with tools Benjamin had secreted in his manacles. Free the others, Ben. I'll scout the area. Dragon was spotted and couldn't put down the guards before shots were fired. The flood of released prisoners provided a distraction so that the G-O-O-D men could evade more guards. I feel rotten, Rich. We're using those poor folks. Dragon justified it by their acting to prevent greater misery. The combined strength of the pair's martial kicks brought down a heavy wooden door protecting Aki, and their fists of fury addressed his elite guard. Together they stand, Benjamin Stanley, once of Harlem, and the fiery youth who calls no place home, Richard Dragon, then took out the last of Aki's guards with a single, magnificent sidekick. 
but was struck by a bullet fired from Aki's own shaky pistol. Every trace of humanity drained from Dragon's face as he gazed at Aki with empty eyes. Then he jump kicked the slave trader through a window into a waiting mob hungry for vengeance. Ben, having only been nicked in the shoulder, observed, It's ugly. They aren't leaving much for the Undertaker, are they? Dragon echoed O-Sensei. A man's actions are the architecture of his own reward. Ben wondered how Richard felt about what had happened. We're changed, Ben. We'll never be the same again. We've taken the first step on a long path, and I'm not sure where it'll lead. But I am sure of this. We can never turn back. Kung Fu Master Richard Dragon, Dragon's Fists, was a 1974 novel written by Dennis O'Neill and Jim Barry, under the pseudonym Jim Dennis. I've never read it, but I understand it was essentially a Remo Williams The Destroyer ripoff that never made it to a second book. Instead, the book was adapted into the first few issues of a comic book, and then licensed slash sold to DC Comics from then on in. The art on this initial outing was by Leopoldo Duranona, probably best known for his Warren work, and his unusual style suits the material well. Benjamin Stanley would eventually morph into Ben Turner, the Bronze Tiger. The shockingly racist Richard Dragon would have eventually become the retired gunslinger of Kung Fu for DC, training the occasional urban vigilante on the side. Neither ever became major selling points for any books, but Denny O'Neill helped assure them elevated status in the DCU's martial arts world, specifically through the relationship with the upcoming Lady Shiva. Moving on from the April-May 1975 Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter number 1, now we look at June-July's number 2. Sparring in white karate tunics tucked into black belts above their white briefs, Richard Dragon and Benjamin were clearly very comfortable with their bodies and sexuality. At a standstill, Osensei called, Enough. Again, you have proved that I can teach you no more, as you proved yourselves in Africa. For all things there is a time, and now, though it burdens my heart, it is time for you to leave me. The pair of masters said their goodbyes, gathered their things, and most importantly, changed into blazing 70s threads. Can you dig it? Benjamin rocked a hoop earring like a pirate, while the dragon sported a green silk neck scarf tied into an ascot, and both busted out tight purple pants. Them boys were in that temple a long time. On their way out, the pair were flagged down by Carolyn Wusan, who claimed to be the goddaughter of the O-sensei. She had never come up in the seven years Benjamin had studied, but regardless, the guys accepted her at her word and offered to escort her to the airport. Carolyn was set to study at New York University, and since Dragon was also hitting the Big Apple, he was set to protect her the whole way. Within a few hundred yards of the temple, martial arts thugs, awfully Caucasian for a bunch operating out of Kyoto, began falling out of the trees. The Kung Fu fighters made short work of their lot, and on questioning one, learned they had been hired by a tall man in a white suit with rubber gloves to snatch the girl. Why? Nobody knew. That night in San Francisco, Mr. Shirudo returned to the dive hotel at which he was staying. The desk clerk, Consuela, was murdered via hypodermic needles by a man calling himself the Swiss. In service to Shirudo's ex-employer, the Swiss was after laser beam frequencies the Asian man had developed but departed with. Shirudo never wanted his concepts to fall into evil hands for the purpose of war and killed himself with a pair of scissors rather than squeal. You fool, how dare you destroy yourself and cheat me of my pleasure. Perhaps it does not matter. I saw him mail a letter to his niece Caroline, no doubt. Benjamin was impressed with the walled villa in Lower Manhattan. Richard's father had left him after dying in a plane crash. Too bad about the goons with the mace that soon blinded Dragon, only to contend with Benjamin. Four against one aren't such bad odds with someone of Ben's skill, but one drew a gun as Richard's vision was clearing. Dragon left to save his friend, but Ben still took a shot in the leg, breaking it. Further, an attacker managed to escape with Carolyn. Richard Dragon allowed another several free shots, which he absorbed by focusing his chi, then let loose on the poor jerk. The hired tough was soon begging for mercy and offering up information. Ben suggested calling in the police, but Dragon insisted the only way to restore their honor was to save Wusan themselves, or rather himself, on account of Ben getting shot again. The Swiss began torturing Carolyn Wusan about the letter that her uncle had sent, about which she knew nothing, since she hadn't checked her mail in days. Richard Dragon found their location, kicked down a door, and took on Tufts armed with ancient weapons, I guess because they were observing handgun laws. Dragon cut Carolyn loose and kicked butt, but at the end of the issue, things looked bad. Carolyn was alone, running through the streets of New York at night. The Swiss was in pursuit, and Dragon was at a loss to further help. A dragon 
Fights Alone was adapted by Denny O'Neill. Art was by Jim Starlin, Alan Weiss, and Al Milgram. Hardly uncommon for the 70s, not only with the illustration style entirely different from that scene in the previous issue, but even from page to page in this one. Starlin probably laid out most or not all of the pages, but only a handful bear the look of his finished pencils. Alan Weiss appeared to most heavily influence the style of art throughout the book, but it seems like the embellisher Milgram did some heavy lifting in the finishing of each page. On to issue number three, cover dated August September 1975. The Swiss managed to capture Carolyn Wusson in short order. A group of burly longshoremen, loggers, firefighters, I don't know, most wearing sweaters and all wearing fedoras? Happened to stumble out of a martial arts dojo or something just as Richard Dragon was trying to rush past them. Because these wildly anachronistic toughs were spooling for a fight to validate their six months of training, Dragon was held up long enough for the Swiss to speed off with Carolyn in a purple sedan. Richard Dragon returned to his luxurious Japanese-style home hidden off of a filthy street where Ben was tooling around on crutches. A message from the Swiss had come for Dragon before he'd gotten back, requesting his presence at another obvious trap. Richard prepared himself mentally in solitude, retrieving a jade dragon's clawed necklace given to him by O-Sensei for times when something greater than human life is in peril. I suppose cute Asian chicks you barely just met being kidnapped qualifies. At the action set piece of an abandoned winery in upper New York State, the Swiss prepared for Dragon's arrival. He had gathered masters of bow sticks, nunchukas, and the kusigama, which is a scythe and mace on a chain, to be filmed in Mortal Kombat with Richard Dragon. A chained up Carolyn Wusan would serve as damsel in distress. The Kung Fu Master arrived to take on Tufts armed with ancient weapons, I guess because they were observing handgun laws, to do exactly the same thing as last time, but with the added voyeuristic cameraman ironically falling on a scythe. You, Swiss, I hold you responsible. It was a game to you. And I lost, but the ultimate triumph may still be mine. A plunger was pressed, napalm exploded out of the wine barrels, and somehow neither Richard nor the Swiss were injured while standing in the middle of it. The Swiss swished away with Carolyn Wusan, Richard Dragon used a bow staff to pull vault to freedom, and vows were made to actually save the girl for sure really next time. Claws of the Dragon was adapted by Denny O'Neill. Art was by Jack Kirby, with inks by D. Bruce Berry. No two issues of Kung Fu Fighter have looked alike, and last issue didn't even resemble itself, but nothing could compare to the whiplash of King Kirby, especially under that Dick Giordano cover. It's like cracking open an issue of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman and seeing Rob Liefeld's name as the sole creative credit. You're totally like, what the what? Plus this is really bad Kirby. Very crude. Can you finish 18 pages of the weekend material? Worse yet, the entire issue spins its wheels, not only ending up at the exact same place where it started, but doing so in a punch-drunk stagger. If it only took four issues to adapt a novel, and this is one quarter of that adaptation, worst novel ever. Finally, we're at the conclusion of the arc. The October-November cover dated number four, once again featuring a cover by Dick Giordano, and interior art by Rick Estrada and Wally Wood, A Time to Be a Whirlwind. Back at this suspiciously luxuriant Manhattan villa, Benjamin is once again set upon by vaguely Caucasian fighters. You fellas drop in for a cup of sugar? No, I suppose not. You want to spar and maybe break my chops. Well, I'm a touch gimpy at the moment, but I prefer my chops unbroken. Fact is, I got real strong feelings on the point. Even on a crutch, Benjamin is holding his own, at least until they actually target his broken leg and then gang up on him, beating him with said crutch. But sweet Mary Mother of Jesus, here comes the white savior Richard Dragon again. Rich, you got a knack of showing up at the right time, so I couldn't handle him alone. Nobody could with a bullet in their leg, Finn. And then, oh dear God, it's another page of recap because the story was so complex to begin with. Rich, I don't mean to sound like an establishment type, but don't you think we ought to drag the fuzz in on this? No. Remember the words of our teacher, the O-Sensei. Until you achieve one witness with all creation, your honor is your greatest possession. We're a long way from a perfectly 
spiritual state, Ben, so we must preserve our honor. And Carolyn was in our care when the Swiss grabbed her. Yeah, we got a duty to get her back. Or venture. That's when Barney Ling, the head of G-O-O-D, showed up. I greet you, gentlemen, and dispense immediately with further politeness. Our interests are one. You wish to return the girl, Carolyn, and we wish to speak with the person who has her, the Swiss. Is got a point? Yes, it has. My agents have learned the Swiss recruits his henchmen from a certain martial arts school. None of my men are qualified martial artists. Of yourselves, this is not true. The point, Barney? Go to the school. Convince the Swiss's people to hire you. Benjamin is in no condition to go undercover, so it's all on Richard Dragon. He keeps following his jade dragon's claw necklace and recalling the words of O-Sensei. There is a time to be a rock, a time to be a deep, silent pool, and a time to be a whirlwind. So Richard Dragon shows up at the dojo. He's immediately recognized as Richard Dragon, and a collection of thugs are offered $10,000 apiece to beat this dude. To quote Scott Evil, why don't you just shoot him? It'd be easy, just shoot him. He's right there, just shoot him. But no, they're going to try to kung fu him. Pages and pages of kung fu fighting, and the dude that's left at the end totally spills his guts about where the Swiss and the girl are. It just so happens they're in a garage connected to the dojo. <sighs> Dragon tries to give Chase barefoot in a kimono. He finally manages to find himself a motorcycle and chase after. The Swiss speeds away from the garage riding a motorcycle that happens to have a sidecar carrying the supposedly helpless Carolyn Wusan. It reminds me how long it's been since I've seen a motorcycle with a sidecar outside of a 1970s movie. Richard Dragon manages to secure his own motorcycle and give chase. When he gets stuck in traffic, he then begins jumping across the backs of trucks while barefoot in a kimono. Swiss. Dragon, you are not human. You pursue me like a fury. The Swiss tries to get past the truck against the guardrail that's too narrow, crashes his motorcycle, and kills Carolyn Wusan, who despite having just had a fatal car crash, is drawn by Wally Wood in the most sensual manner possible. And just to add to it, the colorist decides that the same orangish-yellow skin tone that he's giving this Asian woman should also be the color of her dress. So she basically looks like she's naked with ruffles. We might have meant much to each other, Richard. I might have loved you. Goodbye. Onlookers watch Richard Dragon cradle this woman as she passes into the hereafter. Then they comment as he rises up and disrobes, his face like a mask. He's turning pale as stone. He seems to be swelling. The Swiss, no longer looking so dandy in his all-white outfit that's now torn up, the only color in his ghostly visage coming from his circular blue sunglasses. He's terrified, and rightly so. Ultimately, the fight ends in a junkyard. The Swiss knows that he's no match for Richard Dragon in physical combat, but he does have his weapons, his poison needles. The dragon plucks him through the air as though they were toothpicks. The Swiss lunges and gets a kick to the head, smashing his sunglasses. One punch, two punch, three punch, four punch, until slowly, as though he were underwater, the empty husk that was a Swiss keels over. And at last, the agony and the terror ended. Richard Dragon stands alone in the rays of a dying sun that smolder red as blood. The end. Attention, attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST! Hosted by MASH Megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes, episode by episode, the greatest television series of all time, MASH! Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com. 
Scott McDaniel was toiling in relative anonymity, drawing Daredevil during one of its lowest points, far from the heights it had reached when Frank Miller made his name on the title. In the early 90s, Miller had another huge impact on comics with his high-contrast, minimalist new art style developed for his Sin City series. Among the people he influenced was Scott McDaniel, who suddenly started drawing Daredevil as though Frank Miller was still doing the book. That, an extreme new costume, and enhanced cover gimmicks made Daredevil sell decently again. Then McDaniel bailed to do an Electra miniseries, and not much came of that. Meanwhile, 75% of the Batman family material released in the 1990s was written by Doug Minch, Alan Grant, and Chuck Dixon. To my mind, the latter was scripting the best of the Batman books, and was also largely responsible for making the Tim Drake incarnation of Robin a hot character. Well, DC hot. Robin was a top 50 seller or something. Meanwhile, Marv Wolfman had run the original Robin, Dick Grayson, completely into the ground. The character was repossessed by the Batman editors and ultimately given to Dixon. Since he was already writing a Batman and a Robin, Dixon decided to make Nightwing a poor man's Daredevil. And former poor man's Frank Miller Daredevil artist Scott McDaniel was available to make Dick popular again. Well, DC popular. For Nightwing never did Shaman's Tears numbers or anything like that. Dixon and McDaniel's creative partnership on Nightwing lasted over three years. And I would know, because Dick Grayson is one of my favorite superheroes and I kept trying and abandoning their run. Hell, Dixon lasted twice as long on his own, forcing me to miss the entire Greg Land run on the title from back when I wanted to read books with trace photographs by Greg Lamp. Despite being the most commercially secure Batman family writer, Chuck Dixon quit DC Comics in 2002 to join Mark Alessi's comic creator Colt in Florida, better known as CrossGen. You may remember them as the other overextended indie publisher Marvel Comics bought and then mothballed after the Malibu Ultraverse. May God have mercy on their souls. Dixon sheepishly returned to DC Comics two years later, and despite the utter failure of the Robin series in his absence, was forced to do crappy peripheral titles for the rest of his DC career. Speaking of which, Dixon and McDaniel teamed to make their triumphant return as a creative partnership on the 2004 Richard Dragon relaunch. Here was a chance to prove their might on a character without a devoted built-in audience, and they got canceled inside one year. Three decades into his publishing career, Richard Dragon had become a pudgy, balding, bearded, middle-aged guy who, despite supposedly being the greatest martial artist in the DCU, only trained peripheral vigilantes like The Question and The Huntress to be third-tier combatants. Eight years before the New 52, the same basic formula was executed, rendering Dragon a young ginger stud with attitude and an edgy backstory ready-made for a CW adaptation. K.J. Appa is the Dragon. With a July 2004 cover-dated debut arc literally titled Enter the Dragon, we're introduced to Dick Dragon, who's pulling a Rambo 3 and taking part in a blindfolded kumite. That skinny kid from St. Louis, Richard Drakonovsky, he was a punk. No fight in that kid. Only fear. God hates cowards. That's what dad used to say. God sure hated that kid. But I'm Richard Dragon. And God must love the hell out of me. Yada yada abusive childhood. Yada yada trains up to win blood sport. Yada yada breaks and kills guys in tournaments because he's just too badass to contain. An aging Ben Turner with a receding hairline looking like Ken Fareed dressed like Timbaland shows up to play out the Richard Crenn shtick of telling the white boy he's too valuable to waste on pit fighting. See, it wasn't bad enough being Richard Dragon's invalid soul brother sidekick back in the 70s. Now Ben Turner gets to be Richard's paunchy, sexless, old token mentor figure. Unlike in the original series, Shiva Wusan is introduced as Richard Dragon's nemesis on page 12. She's more respected and popular than either of these clowns, but she's an Asian and a girl, so DC couldn't possibly gamble with giving her a short-lived vanity project of her own. Shiva trained the new jack jiu-jitsu gangsters called the Circle of Six 
six. They were hadouking the mob. Since Richard is a master of each of their individual fighting styles, Ben needs Richard to bring his white power back into the game. The Cracker beats up the brother for a bunch of pages, but can't defeat him because he's lost his mojo. Not because a person of color relying on submission holds is actually the better fighter. Ben manages to force his acknowledged Peckerwood superior into joining his fight against Shiva, and it's going to start in Bloodhaven, because we need Nightwing nostalgia to help sell this book. Over the first six issues, we're treated to Richie Drakonofsky's scintillating origin story of being bullied, trying to learn martial arts from a fraud whose ass Ben kicks, and Richard pestering Ben until he takes him on as a student. Years later, we see him effortlessly winning the under-18 All-Valley Karate Tournament before falling in lust with Shiva, the lady talent scout, who kicks his butt and tells him he's no dragon. Over an undisclosed period of time, Richard and Shiva become opposing paramilitary types, and he finally manages to beat her in a fight after a sucker punch. Shiva asks if he's going to finally kill her and become the dragon, but he kisses her instead. So I guess he's a rabbit. Shiva gives him a back alley education with a body count. Their love affair eventually sours, and Dragon literally kills people in secret unlicensed tournaments because of his broken heart. We're meant to be okay with this, because Richard Dragon is a white person. Speaking of which, there's a scene where Ben says he wants to turn on the car radio after driving for hours in silence, and Richard says, as long as it's not hip-hop. This is an extremely white guy thing to do. It implies that the favorite music of modern black men is somehow inferior or intolerable in comparison to all other musical forms. Alternately, Richard is just dicking with Ben, who says, don't make me throw you out of my ride, brother, before cranking up some 70s funk. Problem being, is the writer now implying that Ben is one of the good ones who listens to non-threatening older music that the writer can relate to and enjoy as a late middle-aged man himself? The whole sequence is sort of a Russian nesting doll of unconscious racist implications. And that's before the duo go to Chinatown to fight a cast of Street Fighter rejects before gangbangers led by a rhyming, ebonic-spouting modern-day huggy bear comes gunning for them. But it's okay, you guys, because we get a Nightwing guest appearance where he totally casually, in a not-at-all-forced way, points out that Richard Dragon was responsible for training Batman, and therefore himself. This is despite the fact that Dragon looks at best the same age as Nightwing, if not even younger, and by this tortured logic, it would be Ben Turner who should be credited with training all of them. But you know, martial arts is like rock and roll music. We don't start crediting people until a white guy does it. In issue 4, after the obligatory nod to their past glories in Bloodhaven, everybody but Nightwing moves to Detroit, Michigan. That includes FBI Special Agent Barney Ling, who in proto-New 52 fashion gains a full head of dark hair while shaving off at least 100 pounds and a couple of decades in age. He's pursuing the Circle of Six and Lady Shiva across state lines. And did I mention there's a scene where Shiva takes off her shirt and runs around in just her bra? Because that happened. Richard and Ben move into a tenement where Richard befriends a Latino boy and tries to make time with his mom. She plays it cool because she thinks Ben and Richard are a gay couple, which Richard loudly grouses to Ben about. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Barney Ling sends in a SWAT team to arrest our boys as a cover for recruiting them to break into a drug running operation. Since Ling can't legally acquire a warrant to investigate. The duo beat up two-thirds of the Circle of Six, but Ben has an ironclad refusal to allow killing in his presence. Dragon insists on killing one of the villains, so Ben abandons him and returns home, where he's crushed by the remaining two Circle of Six members in an ambush. Richard ultimately decides not to kill, leaves the Circle of Four for the feds, and wanders the streets before returning home. Seeing Ben being led out on a stretcher by paramedics, the Dragon seeks out the final two. Shiva decides to murder them herself as a gift to Richard, seemingly in hopes that he will agree to a rematch. Richard refuses, and the story arc ends with him at the bedside of his comatose friend. 
I wrote 75% of the Kung Fu Fighter material on this episode in 2010 and recorded that section almost exactly one year from today. The intention was always to cover the first arcs of the two volumes of Richard Dragon Comics. I bought the 2004 issues new, hated them, but reread them last year for the show. They're the reason this episode is only coming out now. I have a strong dislike of the omnipotent Batman that was developed in the 1990s, and so I also have a drive to explore and respect characters who have managed to take the Dark Knight down a peg. I'd long heard whispers of how Richard Dragon was the only martial artist who could beat Batman, and that intrigued me. It's an urban myth, though, because he only had a minor skirmish that ended in a standstill in a pre-crisis comic that took place on the infamous Earth Haney, named for a writer who had a notorious lack of concern about continuity even by the low standards of Bronze Age DC Comics. Richard Dragon creator Denny O'Neill did allow some retcons under his tenure that suggested his Marty Stew had trained Batman, but they were never credible and are mostly rightly forgotten today. Richard Dragon was always a crummy, pulp paperback, non-starter ripoff who limped into comics where he also sucked on a tailpipe. He's a garbage character derived from a sewage mentality, and the second volume somehow reeks even more for it because it should have known better after 30 years of social progress. Richard Dragon straight up appropriates Asian culture. Badly dubbed martial arts imports were all the rage in the 1970s, and comic books reflecting that trend became a fad. The conventional wisdom was that everything is better with a white dude as the hero, and yet the top chop socky crackers of the 1970s of the big two companies, Richard Dragon and Iron Fist, maybe lasted past a year in their own titles. You know who lasted a decade in an actual successful series? Shang-Chi, the Chinese-born master of the martial arts. I'm not saying you have to be Asian to be a martial arts hero, and these days every superhero knows some kind of specialized hand-to-hand combat. In fact, assuming a martial artist has to be Asian is almost as racist as presuming every Asian hero has to know some martial arts. What I am saying is there are so many Caucasian crime fighters in comics that if you create a new one, you really need to adjust by that choice when everybody who isn't a white man has been underrepresented or noticeably diminished in comic book continuity. Even if you lack a social consciousness, it's canny to recognize while developing a new character that you will be afforded a much greater amount of latitude and frankly undue credit for simply making that character anything but the most consistently obvious choice of a cishet wasp. The caveat of course being that you have to educate yourself enough to avoid racial pitfalls that will undo the goodwill and cachet you'll be gifted for otherwise doing almost nothing but having the color alter the skin tone of your new hero. Chuck Dixon himself had a years-long run with a martial arts hero who was part Asian and part black, until a white guy from the movies insisted on relaunching the old white green arrow. Because how could we manage to get by with one less archer dude in comics? Comics are full up with white dudes. We are at maximum capacity. We do not need white dudes who bite non-white culture. We especially don't need toxic racists like Richard Dragon. In his first appearance, he breaks into somebody's house, steals from them, tries to be an old man, hurls hateful racial epithets, and is rewarded with six years of intense martial arts training in an exotic foreign location with free room and board. If Ben had done what Richard did, he would have been dead on page five, and Fox News would still be bringing him up when discussing the Black Lives Matter movement today. Richard Dragon is a classic example of the transformative power of minorities telling a Caucasian how inherently awesome he is so hard that he actually is portrayed superior to them in every discipline they were defined by. Mr. Miyagi and the Magical Negro are the teachers and sidekicks to this Super Saiyan Aryan Archie Andrews with little in the way of personality, accomplishments, or appeal who is only known for being better than the Asian woman and the African American man who are the highest profile people in the DC Universe who can punch and kick things without any superhuman powers. It's just martial arts in a universe where new gods run sci-fi fascist hellscapes while instantaneously traversing dimensions through space warps and we can't even let a person of color have one little thing without some broheim stepping up to claim the championship belt. Just imagine if Chuck Dixon and Scott McDaniel had used their talents to at least attempt a Lady Shiva or Bronze Tiger series instead of being the cliché clowns behind this dumpster fire
entire book that ends with Ben Turner in traction after one major blow. How about if this assignment had reteamed the Guy Gardner Warrior creative team of Bo Smith and Mitch Bird, and they basically did a thinly disguised Big Trouble in Little China comic? Richard Dragon could have been the Jack Burton of the book. Ostensibly the star, but really a swaggering, incompetent loudmouth who tells everybody he trained Batman while Ben does the actual work and humors his deluded, bumbling sidekick. That could have been fun. Or use Richard Dragon's history of racism and murder, outright murder, to build him up as a major villain for someone who needs a rogues gallery, like Batwing. I've referenced the New 52 several times on this show, and there is actually a modern reboot of Richard Dragon that frames him as a badass villain. Of course, now his real name is Ricardo Diaz, and he fights Green Arrow, that guy who replaced his part Asian, part black son that we never talk about anymore. And the writer who made that choice? White dude. Of course it is. Of course it is. Hey, I'm Jen. And I'm Sean. We're here to tell you about our podcast, Worst Collection Ever. And this is the show where we tell you about the worst comic book collection in existence. And it just happens to belong to us. We have some of the worst comics from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They're bad. They don't, Terrible. They're not worth anything. No good. Why do we Very own them? Bad. I own a number of issues of Terror, Inc. and Guy Gardner. Basically, we go around to local comic book stores and we buy everything we can out of dollar boxes. We tell you about the weird stuff in them. We tell you about stuff that's related to them. We go into tangents. And we're very uninformed, so... Oh my god, totally. But totally check out our podcast because you'll hear us just talk and joke about Marvel books and DC books from God Only Knows When. That's right. It's our show, Worst Collection Ever, every Tuesday on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. Download, rate, subscribe, tell a friend. It'll be good and terrible, but good. If you enjoyed the music used on this episode, please legally download the following songs. Kung Fu by Curtis Mayfield. Dragon Days by Alicia Keys. Dance the Kung Fu by Carl Douglas. Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones. Pretty Fly for a White Guy by The Offspring. Sweep the Leg by No More Kings. Taekwondo by Muhammad Ali. And Gianna Gee by Raleigh Gracie. A long time ago, at least 2016, Siskoid made mention of our podcast on a show that I think he was guest starring on, maybe one of Michael Bailey's, I don't remember, but I kept meaning to run the clip, so here you go. As you know, uh, Diablo Frank is covering Bloodlines. <laughs> yes, he on, is. On one of his shows, and it's only teaching me that, one, I, I, read, I read all of those, I remember reading all of those, but I don't remember a single detail from him. <laughs> because he goes through it, I go, well, it's, oh, I guess that happened, and I don't, don't remember it. <laughs> I'm not sure if we had a Facebook page the last time we did uh, listener feedback stuff, but let's acknowledge Clinton Robinson, Grant Richter, Nicholas Prom, Ali Batts, DeBeche, and Michael Wagner for liking and sharing there. We also got Twitter attention from the 108th Sage, Adam Ironberry, Alan Middleton, Alex Martin, Ali Batts, Ange, Batted Shapirak, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Bucket Highball 2814, Caroline Wells, Cash Flag, aka Al, Chris at Bat Books for Beginners, Chris Sheehan, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Columbus Comics Corner, Comic Reflections, Comics Couplets, Comics in the Golden Age, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Ed Moore at Indie Comics Fan, Marvel Bronze Age, Miskatonic, Teal Productions, and Inigo Montoya at Earth. 
Urban Fantasist, Firestorm Fan, FK Jason, Gaston Pujol, Gord Tolton, Grant Richter Writes, I'm the Gun Podcast, It's Plastic Man, Jeffrey Brown, Joe Crawford, John D. Knoll, John Stinson Fernand, Justice First Dawn, who added us to his Web Up Follow Fridays, Keith G. Baker, Kirk at Work with Kirk, Lava Hog, Longbox Crusade, Matches Baloney, The Namor Submariner Podcast, Parlia Pod Comics Talk, Professor Frenzy, Randy Caldwell, Raven X Fields, Reggie Reggie, The Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Retroist, Richard Field, Richard Grieco, Even Looks Good Kill, Ryan Daly, Sean Merrick, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Slangwood Resists, Steve Sellers, World Worlds Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Files Podcast. I'm the Gun Podcast. Thank us for our covering 30 years of Eclipse Story. Sean Merrick wrote, Eclipse was my jam. Joe Crawford wrote, Crazy good episode. Good work, sir. Justice First Dawn went, Ooh, Black Diamond. Rolled Spine delivers the wicked goodness yet again. And I'll be honest, I'd never heard that Kiss song before I was looking for the Eclipso material. I was never that big into Kiss, but that's a pretty cool track. Keith G. Baker wrote, Some Black Diamond action by Kiss Live on the Midnight Special. And as soon as a link to a video. Siskoid wrote, Intense production, Frank. I enjoyed it for that. Though I've gone on record saying Eclipse of the Darkness Within was an entirely boring enterprise because it was so damn redundant from annual to annual. I can't say too much about that because I think that Bloodlines is really repetitive too, but it's my jam. That said, I really did enjoy the politicking of the monthly series, at least until Amanda's new Task Force got massacred. I do so hate it when they waste characters like that, which I freaking loved it when they wasted all those characters like that. I wasn't a big DC person when I started reading the Eclipse of series, so to me it was just like, hey, I kind of vaguely recognize that character. Oh, Eclipse just chopped their head off! I thought it was cool. Oh, hey, I threw up a Twitter poll, and uh, Bloodlines was far and away the solo show of mine that folks wanted to have come back again, like by a huge margin, like 68% or something like that. Plus, we've got podcast crossover season coming up, so uh, it's good that we're finally getting some new Bloodlines out. At some point, I suppose we're going to have to actually start covering the Bloodlines annuals again. That's been a depressing and de-stressing proposition, but uh, we'll deal with that when we have to. This program is a not-for-profit fan production. Any copyrighted materials within are believed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended against the rights holder. You may leave your comments on the DC Bloodlines blog, the Rolled Spine podcast WordPress page, at Twitter with either Commander Blanks or Rolled Spine, or on the Facebook page. And of course, within the context of social media only, spill the blood!